Welcome to a new episode of the Sunday Sauce. I have a man here who really needs no introduction. This is Andrew Giuliani. He's currently running for the governor of New York State. He's the son of the legendary Rudy Giuliani. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it so much. Michael, thank you very much for having me. You know, I'm just getting hungry thinking about the title of Sunday Sauce. And I got to tell you, I feel a little guilty because it's been probably about 10 years since I cooked my family Sunday sauce over here. So I'm going to have to, I don't know if during a gubernatorial campaign, I'm going to have the hours of time to be able to make the Sunday sauce this year. But at some point in the near future, I'm going to have to put in a Sunday afternoon where I can do it. Well, it's funny you say that, you know, because at least we'll, if you, when you do get elected governor, we'll have a governor who actually cooks because uh, I remember Cuomo actually <laughs> admitted on live TV, you know, he's 100% Italian, and he admitted he actually buys his sauce, which is a disgrace. <laughs> so, you know. You know, you know I, I'll tell you, I, I can't get disowned over here. Now, now I'm not going to go and, and, and sell you like I'm the best cook in the world, because I'm certainly not that. But, you know, with, the, with a few, uh, with a few maybe, uh, maybe give me one or two more uh, trials to get all set up there, ready to go with my Sunday sauce, and, and it'll be at least edible enough where you'll invite some people over. Uh-huh. So that's good. I, I love that. Uh, was is your dad a co- good cook or or no? He never cooked. You know, dad dad cooked a little bit, but he wasn't he wasn't a big cook. My mother actually was on the Food Network right at the beginning of the Food Network for about five and a half six years. So uh, so she was the one who you know really uh, understood the food world in our family more than anything else. Um, I just think more than anything else, my, my my greatest asset in in the whole food world is my ability to eat. Because uh, I, I unfortunately, if people see pictures of me, I, I didn't get the olive skin tone, but certainly I got the Italian appetite. I wish it was the other way around. <laughs> that's, that's very funny. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we all know your family history. Um, you, you, you come, you, you grew up in New York, obviously. Uh, you actually went to, you went to high school in New Jersey, right? I did. I went to St. Joseph Regional. St. Joseph has been kind of a recurring figure in my life. Um, although I told my wife, I said, if uh, if you tell me what Mary told Joseph, I don't know if I take it the same way, but <laughs> he's, he's definitely been a recurring figure in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so why you 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 did you ever think you would even get into politics or you because, you know, I know you've always been like a political advisor. You're you're a hell of a golfer, apparently. This is what I've heard. So uh, what did you ever think about? Like you would even consider being a governor? Well, you know, I've, I've always stayed around politics and this is, you know, I, I remember a little bit of the 1989 campaign uh, when I was three years old, more than anything, kind of, you know, going from event to event and licking some envelopes and doing all that. But, you know, politics in so many ways, it's, it's been in my blood. And, and I think to be able to learn from uh, Rudy Giuliani and, and Donald Trump, uh, two change agents, two people that, you know, were, were not owned by the establishment like so many politicians are. Um, I think more than anything, it inspired me to see, you know, yes, of course, you can see the worst in politics. You see what they're doing right now to my father. I actually the other day was at Mar-a-Lago and and met with President Trump. And then afterwards, spent a little bit of time with Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and, you know, I I think uh, uh, Kyle is a great example of what we see when when you see, you know, that that the facts don't matter, that there's just a narrative uh, that comes out there. And, And I saw that when I went to Duke University with the lacrosse team. We saw it with Kavanaugh when I worked in the White House, getting dragged through the mud uh, with the facts not even mattering. We saw it with Kyle. So uh, t- to, to be honest, I've seen the worst in politics, but I've seen the absolute best in it, too. 
I can tell you, when you have someone like a Rudy Giuliani, like a Donald Trump, who's in the right place at the right time with the right team, uh, there's no greater there's no greater thing you could do with your life to affect change in more people's lives positively. Right. So, I mean, like, you know, we're, we're, we're friendly. We've talked. Um, but I really haven't asked you why governor first and not mayor. I know, like, you know, Curtis ran for mayor. You're obviously friends with Curtis. But why didn't you start at mayor, you know, like your father did, but just go straight for governor? So I, I always promised myself and I promised my father as well that the first race that I run, uh, I would see a path to victory. And unfortunately, in the mayoral race and Curtis did an amazing job and he set so much of, I think, what's going to be a big victory in New York State in 2022 up for us last year in 2021. But I, I just couldn't see the path to victory for a Republican in 2021 in New York City. Um, being eight to one Democrat to Republican specifically in New York City. Uh, and we saw Curtis ran an incredible race um, and, you know, was almost able to crack 30 percent. Um, on the flip side, in looking at the governor's race, there is an absolute valid path to victory. Um, we can talk about the narrative all you want and, and politicians, myself included, love telling stories. Um, but but I love to look at the hard data on this because you can't twist the data Um you need, as a Republican in New York State to win statewide, you need to win 30 to 33 percent of New York City. Last year, Curtis ended up winning 29 and a half percent of New York City, running against as conservative a Democrat as he could have run against. You know, it, I mean, Adams was the only one who would admit that crime is a problem. He's not doing much about it now, but he's the only Democrat that would admit that crime was a problem. We're going to be running against a far more liberal opponent with one more year of Biden disastrous policies in the White House. Um, and then on top of that, you look at the gains that we saw in Nassau, in Suffolk, in Albany County, in Erie County, really all around New York State. Um, th there is an incredible path to victory just in seven short months uh, to win this race. You're absolutely right. And I also actually wanted to congratulate you earlier on getting on the ballot. I forgot to actually tell you that. Thank you. I appreciate it, Michael. You know, it's been a battle. And I have to thank so many people that went out in March and signed for us, all those people who volunteered for us, our staff who went out in freezing cold weather. We had some good days in March. We had a whole lot of, of bad days in March. So to get nearly 25,000 Republicans to sign for us, uh, to withstand a legal challenge from uh, Lee Zeldin, who just dropped it today, as a matter of fact, um, that's our third victory in the last seven days against him in the at the board of elections and in court and uh, you know look i think that's important because he was he was lying to new yorkers and saying that he was not behind trying to throw us off the ballot i've been very clear from the beginning i want this to be an open dialogue with new york i want to make sure that on june 28th or if our primary gets moved to august whenever it is that we have as many candidates as possible out there. That way, New Yorkers can make the decision. Lee has wanted to be the product of the backroom deal in Albany, and he's wanted to kick people off the ballot. Well, he's done it unsuccessfully, and now he's going to have to deal with the open debate, which I think is exactly what a democracy should be all about. We've been championing the 2.9 million registered Republicans should have a voice come June 28th, and Lee has wanted nobody to have a voice on June 28th. Well, I'm thankful to say that all 2.9 million registered Republicans will have their voice be it on June 28th or be it in August. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, Lee Zeldin. I never met him. You know, I know you, obviously, we see each other all the time. We, we hang out in the same circles. And I always see your people, like even in my prior episodes, I tell everybody, I always see Giuliani's people in Manhattan, in the boroughs, in there. I never see Z, Lee Zeldin's people ever, but I always hear they're in like Queens and Long Island. That's it. Like he, I never see his people come to the outer boroughs. I don't understand what's like his strategy, you know? I, I think that's, and I think that's been the real difference in strategy from the beginning. We started this campaign uh, on May 18th. So almost a year ago today, we started this campaign. And my strategy has been to make sure that we are getting in touch and not in an Andrew Cuomo kind of way, but engaging <laughs> with as many New Yorkers as possible. And, and that's been the idea. You know, look, Obviously, we're not going to be able to directly contact 2.9 million registered Republicans, but we're going to darn try and we're going to make sure that we reach out to as many as possible and have that. I really think that Lee expected that he was just going to be able to get crowned the Republican nomination uh, through the party boss. Um, well, thank goodness we live in a democracy, uh, which is, you know, people can talk about the irony of me saying this, but really it's true. Thank goodness we live in a democracy and the 2.9 million registered Republicans will have a voice. We were expecting this all along. We knew that it was gonna be a push and an uphill battle, but now that we are on the ballot and we have four different debates that will be coming up in the month of June, uh, we're excited to make sure that this debate over who should be uh, the nominee for the party comes right into the public forum. Because the truth is too, that's gonna help us even more on November 8th. That's the whole idea about this thing. The more we get our ideas out there, the better the better we're going to be on November 8th because our ideas are better than the left's ideas. It's not even close. I mean, absolutely. Uh, who, who, who doesn't like um, criminals running around and this bear <laughs> reform? Not, I mean, like, you know, like who likes that? I mean, exactly. obviously, you know, honestly, some of these Democrats are starting to come around and say like, all right, I think, I think enough is enough. You know, the, the, the regular moderate Democrats, I'm not talking about like the AOCs and, you know, right. who, Right. I mean, yeah. even, even Hulkle, I'll give her a little credit. She tried to adjust the bill for him and try to press on, you know, these senators and, and whatever. But uh, obviously nothing happened. So I give her, I I'll give her a little credit. Lip service. You know, I, I wonder if that was just lip service, because the truth is, you know, if you're governor and, uh, you know, you can go back to the Shelley Silver versus Pataki law cases, um, the governor of New York has more power than any of the other 49 governors. Uh, and that really actually ends up going back to, to the judiciary in New York State, hating Sheldon Silver so much that they gave Pataki an inordinate amount of power. So I look at it this way. I think that was a whole media ploy where she said, well, we want to adjust it, but Stuart Cousins and Hasty won't do this. Well, I can tell you very simply, on day one of a Giuliani administration, I will sit down with Stuart Cousins and Hasty and say very simply, my number one priority is completely repealing bail reform. If you don't completely repeal bail reform, we have a budget negotiation coming up. And your top three priorities, I'm not funding it, period. That's where, and so understanding your leverage in all this, I think she completely understands her leverage. And I think she just didn't want to actually do anything about bail reform, bail, bail reform before a Democratic primary. That's my theory on it. But I feel like, you know, these Democrats, if they just, did something about bail reform, got the streets safer, like before November, they would be heroes and they would just win. They would win every single election because, 
you know, then people wouldn't look to somebody different like yourself or Lee Zeldin. It's like, hmm, maybe if I do vote for this guy, they will change the, the state or the city, right? Is that, is that crazy thinking? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's accurate thinking. I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think they look at the AOCs of the party and they're scared. They're scared of, of the socialist communist wing. And, and unfortunately, if you look at so much of you know what people like to call the mainstream media, I call it the leftist or the Pravda media. Um, you know, I think you've seen that they've been infiltrated by this ideology as well. Um, I mean, think about, we'll take voter ID, for example. 80% of Americans agree with right. voter ID, which means the majority of Democrats believe that voter ID is something we should happen. If you watch CNN or MSNBC on this, which I haven't watched much of the last year. It's racist. Um, what, what, what I can tell you, exactly, it's racist. <laughs> it's racist. So, so to me, the, the most radical people in the Democratic Party, it's not just the AOCs, but they're running the media organizations as well. And they're certainly pushing the content. So I think that's where, um, you know, the, and there's very little courage in the Democratic Party. I would say outside of Joe Manchin and maybe Kristen Sinema, there's very little courage in the Democratic Party these days. Do you think Mitt Romney should just convert to a Democrat already and just cross <laughs> the floor? What do you think about that? I, I think Mitt Romney should retire from public life, to be perfectly honest. He's, he's been a complete disaster. Um, I think, to, you know, voting for both sham impeachments was uh, was disgusting. And I think uh, honestly, I think uh, history will um, will write Mitt Romney uh, a, a very bad legacy because he has been somebody who has uh, continued to be wishy washy and flip flop. I mean, you can go back to his time as governor of Massachusetts and you can look at his presidential runs. Uh, actually, one of the things that I think uh, all of the presidential contenders in 28 and 2008 when my father ran agreed upon was that they all th thought Miss Mitt Romney was uh, a disingenuous ass excuse my language but that's really that's really what they said I mean um, I'm sure a lot so of people the agree. answer is yes he should <laughs> yeah I mean um you know I just actually yesterday I think I read about him oh Trump will win the 2024 nomination like like sweeping no problem but meanwhile, he just impeached. So like, yeah, he's very, I don't understand this man. Very, very silly man. So, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think he has much integrity. And I think that's where it is. And I think the media likes to play him up as having integrity, or I should say the leftist media likes to play him up because he's a thorn in Republican sides. And I think that's, I think that's more than anything. They like that more than the actual truth. Do you think um, a lot of people ask me, do you think now, you know, I know your, your dad with the whole Trump thing going on, like, you know, whatever, it's all hearsay. It's all crap. We know this already. Right. But do you think that would hurt your vote? You know, I think more than anything, I have to be genuine with New Yorkers and I'm not going to, you know, in the exact opposite way that Mitt Romney is not genuine. I try to be genuine. I worked four years for President Trump in the White right. House and I'm proud of my service to the country. And I've known him for 23, 24 years, almost 25 years now. Uh, I was just with him a couple of nights ago. Uh, and we met before we, we saw this 2000 mules movie, which I would certainly recommend anybody taking a look at. Uh, if you want to know part of the story of the 2020 election, mm. it's very accurate. Um, and so I'm not going to be disingenuous to voters in New York. Uh, if they think my connection to Trump disqualifies me in some kind of way, I, again, I, I think that's uh, the leftist media that's trying to play that up. I think the majority of certainly Republicans and the majority of independents and a lot of Democrats look and say, hey, wait a second, you know, Trump was in office two years ago 
this is not the thing that I want Democrats to campaign upon. I'm paying $4.50, maybe $5 a gallon for gas prices. I'm paying 20, 20% more uh, for, for chicken at the grocery store and this and that. Um, I have inflation coming for everything, everything in my life, um, and I'm having trouble with my paycheck. Um, that's a Joe Biden issue. So I think they're going to have to defend uh, Joe Biden and the crazy radical leftist policies that we've seen. And that extends into New York State with Kathy Hoke. Right. I agree. I mean, um, I think a lot of these Democrats now are actually like secretly wish Trump was here and it kills them <laughs> to say this because, um, you know, obviously we know before this war with Ukraine and Russia that the gas prices were already going up. There's a there's a literal chart on a government website. You can't hide it. You can't blame the quote unquote Putin price hike, as little red lying hood says, Jen Psaki. <laughs> I, I, I just, it's just like the most ridiculous. There's no such thing as a Putin price hike. Do yeah. these people don't understand that? Um, yes, the U.S. sanctions Putin and stops buying oil from him, but everyone else is going to buy oil from Putin. So he's just still going to be rich. He doesn't care about sanctions. He laughs. It's, a, it's, a, it's very, it's quite comical, actually. Well, it, it is, and and I would point anybody with any common sense to the last seven years of the narrative on this. First off, we saw that Putin, when Obama was president of the United States, uh, annexed Crimea, right? Trump gets in. The media likes to say that Trump is owned by Putin. He's Putin's puppet, all that stuff. What happens over those four years, right? He does not approve Nordstrom 2 pipeline. Keystone gets worked on right there. And you have nothing but 31 new sanctions on Russia. And Putin does not take one step forward. Within the first month, of Trump leaving office and Biden coming in, all of a sudden, Keystone is cut, Nordstrom 2 is approved, and now Putin is in war trying to annex and take the rest of Ukraine. You tell me who's owned. Tell me who's owned by Putin. It's not, obvious. Not it's to Obama mention, and it's Biden who's owned by Putin. And Trump did nothing but make it tougher and tougher on crazy tyrants like Putin's lives. Correct. Not to mention, uh, you know, Biden keeps just sending just unlimited amounts of money that we don't have to Ukraine, just billions and billions of dollars that, you know, we can use here for our homeless veterans, homeless people, our border. I mean, I could just go on and on all that money he's sending over to Ukraine, you know, but Hunter Biden had business there. So he's looking out for his son. And I just read actually um, Joe Biden won't get do that IRS audit because it actually might show that he had, he profited from Hunter's business partners. So there you go. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, when President Trump mentioned America first and talked about it, and really that, that's exactly how he lived his administration. This wasn't something that he just said. Uh, this is something that every single day we live by. It was America first. It didn't mean America only, but it just meant that a strong America was going to be strong for the rest of the world, for the democratic forces around the world. And we saw that with Israel, how much stronger Israel was able to get one of our great allies here. Right. Um, you know, when you continue to give your money and, and American taxpayer dollars away uh, without, with complete disregard for the actual price, I mean, first off, it contributes to our inflation, but it, it also never actually addresses some of the major issues that we're dealing with here in the United States of America that could be helping those very taxpayers that are paying into that. And I think that's where, uh, you know, the media. And I think that's where the Democrats just have uh, a total disregard for uh, for 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 dollars or for taxpayer dollars. Of course, because they want to give they're all about distributing other people's wealth. You know, if other people work hard for their money like Elon Musk and, you know, yeah. those kind of people. 
especially Elon Musk now because he wants to take over Twitter. They want to give all his money away. He should pay taxes, blah, blah. But these laws that he doesn't have to pay certain taxes because is what lawmakers who've been in office for 40, 50 years created. So he's just fought and President Trump as well. He, yeah. he when he you know, he's just following the laws that were created by people who were in office way before him. So uh, I don't understand why these people get angry with him. You know what I'm saying? A- absolutely. And I, I think it's very simple. They get angry with him because he doesn't go along uh, with the uh, with what we've seen in, in this social media movement, which is we're going to silence conservatives uh, and we're going to allow the Ayatollah to uh, to to say j- death to Jews. Hey, uh, which is you know, absolutely yeah. radical. Think about it. It's, it's just it's wild when, when you actually put that and, and you get that out there and you look at some of the things that have been censored on the left, uh, on the right. And some of the things I don't even say on the left, some of the things that are just completely anti-Semitic that, um, that you know, I, I, it's tough to believe this. But that's but that's truly where I think so many of these social media CEOs have been. That's why you saw Twitter having, you know, a, a complete backlash when when they found out that Elon Musk was buying this thing. You know, look, I, I, I always am careful to put my eggs in one basket with one person. But I, I do think there was great progress for the First Amendment when he bought uh, Twitter. And I'm certainly hopeful that it can be, again, a public a public square as it was supposed to be uh, and not a uh, publishing company, because uh, I always said this. As soon as Republicans won back the House and took the oath of office on January 3rd in 2023, we would know who was owned by big tech or not, because any Republican, any conservative that did not work to repeal Section 230A, um, in my mind, is bought and owned by by big tech. Of course. Of course. I mean, it's it's like I said, it's, like you said, I told it says death to Jews, death to America. I mean, even on a local standpoint, uh, I, we have a, I, I live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I, you know the neighborhood. Uh, I have a local con- um, councilman and, con- and senator who are both liberals. Every year, the Palestinians have a call, something called the Day of Rage. They go oh, in the, middle, they go the May, middle of Bay Ridge, right on Fifth Avenue, very busy block. They burn mm-hmm. American flags and Israeli flags together, scream death to America, Death to Israel. This is this is in America. I mean, yeah, this is unacceptable. And and the, the councilman and the senator just let it go, and they don't they don't say anything. This is the kind of world that we live in right now with all these crazy leftist liberals. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. So so to to allow that to happen with you know basically no attention and just kind of allowing it to go on. Yet uh, when the New York Post ends up pointing out what we've found out as a fact, what I knew over a year and a half ago were facts about Hunter Biden's laptop and about uh, basically Joe Biden being owned by China and by Burisma. Um, That stuff is now not allowed in the public sphere because you have some radicals who are running policy at Twitter who decide to deplatform. Or think about this. And this is one thing that I always love love to talk about, because I think it just is a a great example of everything. Um, Anybody who is an elected official. Right. If you're elected, you have been chosen by New Yorkers, by Americans, by whoever your constituency is to be your voice. Mm -hmm. That person should never be deplatformed. That, in my opinion, because what you're doing is you're actually deplatforming all of those people who have said, uh, I want them to be my voice. Look. I think AOC is one of the most dangerous voices in our country right now. And I think what she's pushing as somebody whose wife came from communism, I think what she's pushing 
uh, is extremely dangerous. And uh, I would argue uh, not just un-American, but, uh, you know, just radical. Absolutely. Um, but, but she is she has been elected to be the representative for uh, for New Yorkers. So to me, I say, well, look, she should have the opportunity for those New Yorkers to be able to say what New Yorkers have elected her to say in the public sphere. If New Yorkers don't like it, then in two years they should vote her out. But how do you deplatform a president of the United States that got 74 million Americans to vote for? It's beyond radical and it just drives me nuts. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like I said, Putin invaded a country, kills kills women, rapes boys, his army, and he still has a Twitter. But Donald Trump doesn't have a Twitter. This is the kind of yep. world we live in these days. Yep. I mean, it's nuts. Um, Andrew, I know you gave me a lot of time. So I have one last thing. Everyone always asks me, what did you think of the Chris Farley Saturday Night Live sketch about you? <laughs> Please. You know, I, I wish I would have had a chance to meet him. You know, one of the things uh, when I was working in the White House that first weekend, made fun of Sean Spicer. And I went up to him the next day and I said, Sean, you know, Melissa's pretty good, but it's not going to top the Chris Farley invitation. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so you're a fan then. You're a fan. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I wish I would have had a chance to, to meet yeah. him. It's, uh, you know, one of those things that's uh, because it's on his best of it's, you know, people have seen this now for 27, 28 years. Yeah. Um, I actually just had the opportunity to go on stage with Jim Brewer, another veteran of Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, a couple of weeks back. And he he actually ended up doing a skit called The Joe Pesci Show. Uh, and he interviewed my father on that show on SNL. But uh, we were talking about how, how talented Farley was. And he was saying, you know, toward the end of Farley's lives, uh, Farley's life, when he was obviously struggling with substance abuse, um, you know, he, during the rehearsals, he was not, he wasn't nailing it. He wasn't great. And Jim was saying, you know, his chest was out. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm actually outperforming Farley in these rehearsals. Wow. And he said, as soon as the light went on, and as soon as it went live, uh, Farley just took it to another level that he had never seen before. Uh, and that's the kind of performer that he was. And, and obviously a troubled guy, but from everything that I knew and everything that I had heard, uh, a guy that brought a lot of joy to people's lives, not just from what they saw on Saturday Night Live and in his movies, um, but also in his life. He was uh, he was a good guy from what I heard. Amazing. All right. So how where do we go to help you donate? How do we help you? Social media. Go ahead. Go to nyforgiuliani.com. That's N-Y-F-O-R-G-I-U-L-I-A-N-I.com. And click on the volunteer button. We can use as many volunteers as possible with uh, what looks like about eight weeks before our primary. We'll see about that here in the next week, whether that stays on that date or moves back to August. Um, or feel free to donate if you got a couple bucks. Buy a hat. we got some great Giuliani merchandise on there. We love the red hats. Actually, believe it or not, the hat was designed by President Trump. I showed it to him, and he gave me a little piece of advice to you know move this over here. And so I said, well, can I say it's designed by President Trump? He said, yes, you can. So I Amazing. said, okay, great. It's designed by President Trump. So <laughs> love that. I love that. All right, Andrew. Well, listen, thank you for your time and uh, good luck. I know you got this and I'm looking forward to see you soon. Thanks a lot, Michael. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you.